Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye. And Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, what's new, man? Just run What's new? What's new? Oh, man, I, I do not look forward to preambles now because I, I struggle to think what is materially new for me to announce. <laughs> and we just had that convo now. Like we do some small stuff here and there, but I guess what's new with me, we've done a private loan. You helped me out with lending some money out to someone recently. We have another private loan that is being extended. So getting some cash flow on both of those. Uh, sent out a new wholesale deal. We have a couple and the pipeline that we're working on. Um, just networking with other investors as well. So I had a Zoom call with some other people, just connecting with them, seeing how everything's going, how we can help each other out, what we're struggling with in our business, how we can improve. And really, I guess for us, we've been looking at getting into the social media game with Rise a bit more. So I know that you facilitated a meeting with our VA on shorts, reels, and just really... Yeah, continuing to build that rise brand, but that's sort of what what I've been been doing at the moment. I want to keep busy. I'm trying to keep busy, but I also don't want to buy right now unless there's a really good deal, which I'm still on the market for looking for deals. But unless it's a stellar deal, I don't feel comfortable just buying at this moment. Yeah, I, I saw something like it was ultimately like everyone wants prices to come down, and they say they're going to be like opportunistic when prices come down. But the reality is prices are only going to come down when there's not enough buyers that can buy real estate or, or that as much as we want to, maybe we aren't able to for various reasons, right? And then the reality is most people that were waiting for that opportunity won't be able to buy, which is kind of what they say about capital as well, right? It's like, oh, I'm waiting for the stock market to collapse or, or the market to collapse so I can buy more, but when buy more you might, or when that happens, you might be, for example, like unemployed and shit like that, right? But no, I echo that, man. I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, uh, not doing nearly as much as we were like a couple months ago, but I think that is also not a bad thing in today's environment. So especially like our, our listeners that, uh, you know, hear about everyone doing doing the most. I think a lot of it is kind of everyone has slowed down across the board, which is good and it's much needed. There was that one property I was looking at last week, man. That, that one kind of drove me nuts. Was, we, we talked about it in the preamble last week and uh, I saw it again on the weekend and then I saw it again on Tuesday night. I was like, all right, I keep looking at the same property over and over again. I'm just going to pick up the phone, call this guy, make an offer, Brilliant. see what happens. Because I, I told my wife I wasn't going to buy any more real estate. <laughs> after, after the July uh, 7 flex purchase, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. Not going to buy anything else. But this shit's a drug, right? So you're, you're constantly looking for the next deal. Yeah. So I told her on Tuesday night, I'm like, look, this one's just been sitting on the market. I have to call this realtor. I got to figure out if I can make a deal where she's like, whatever, just go for it. So I called the guy and fucking shit had sold. And he's like, yeah, there was eight offers. And I'm like, oh, cool. So like, whatever. I thought maybe it sold like 10, 15 grand over and it sold apparently like 830 or 840 or something like that. And I was like, that is at least 10% over list price, which you don't really see in today's market. And it doesn't make sense because the ARVs were sitting at about 950 to a million. So at that point, if you're going to spend 840 for this, why not just buy a renovated product? But I don't know. Some people are still out there doing some crazy shit. Yeah, there are, there are always some of those outlier sales that are happening. I was on Twitter and I saw someone share a house in Oshawa that sold for eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, 
it wasn't uh, one of those new build North Oshawa houses. It was a it was a nice house. It's a decent house, but not a mansion by any means. Um, we were talking offline about properties in the core, seeing a lot more low million dollar sales on the freehold. So I was just clicking on a couple of semi-detached houses and I'm noticing a few of them are selling at 1.1 million, 1.2, a million, and they are decently renovated. They are not shitholes, right? So there's opportunity out there for home buyers who are looking to move in. However, qualification is another issue on it. So I'm sure you can speak more towards that. You shared something with me yesterday with the bond, uh, the bond yields relieving a little bit, yeah, but we were talking yeah. about lenders don't pass that on. Lenders are quick to pass on increases, but yeah. they are very, very slow to pass on decreases. <laughs> but if it stays this high, like it's just a matter of time and like, fuck, I can wait like a month. I, mean, I just need my, my renewals coming up in uh, uh, January, February of next year. If uh, the rates could drop before that, that'd be greatly appreciated, but <laughs> oh man, I really well, hope I agree, so. though. That, that's another that's actually a really important point, right? I think people aren't, aren't watching the core. So what happened is when prices went up, is the core went up and then everything kind of ripple effect after that, right? Like Trotta goes up and then as a result, Brampton, Missaga, Markham, uh Pickering, whatever, everything else goes up, and then the surrounding region from there, Belleville Berry, London goes up, and then so on and so on. It's all just like one big ripple effect, right? So I think the opposite is happening now. Not enough people are looking at the core which will then people buying in like Mississauga for a million might go, oh shit, I could buy like a freehold instead in Toronto for like a million, right? And then therefore Mississauga, just as a random example, I don't know what Mississauga's prices are, uh, but Mississauga could drop to like 900, right? So I think the suburbs are, I think a little bit of a lagged effect, which we saw on the way up and, and we probably will see on the way down. So it's interesting, interesting about in time, just need money to take advantage of everything. Yeah, yeah. Again, like real estate's very localized, but I do agree with the general sentiment that when Toronto started going up in prices, we saw Windsor go up, we saw Sudbury yeah. go up, we saw Timmins go up, we saw every single market rise, right? Uh, right. The pace of how they rose, it, it really depends. But we're seeing Toronto shit the bed right now. <laughs> Once of inventory is climbing up. Someone just shared data on, again, I keep on talking about Twitter, but that's honestly where I've been looking uh, very often to see uh, what boots on the ground people are thinking because it's it, for those who don't use Twitter, it's a cool tool. You get like masses of realtors posting what they're seeing without actually having to have a conversation with each single one. My timeline just like blown up and the, the sentiment sort of correlates what people are, are are saying amongst each other. So the condo market in, in Toronto, I think it's touched six months, uh, uh, months of inventory, are very close to that which is pretty much a, we're, we're talking about a, um, a buyer's market at that point. And it's only going to continue to get worse. Freeholds are still about three. They're climbing up. Maybe they'll hit four months. We'll see what happens. But again, there's opportunity out there if you hunt hard enough. Anything? Oh, do we want to talk about the, the, the Fed holding rates? Uh, well, so I, didn't, I didn't look into that as in-depth as maybe I should have. Uh, I actually realized that that was even happening yesterday when the bond yield essentially went down uh, and then you you and I were talking and we were like, oh, what the hell is happening? And the Fed decided to hold the rates. But I don't know. Do you have any insights from that? I, I, I didn't do a deep dive into it yet. So what I do is usually I listen to it like a podcast. So the presser is usually about an hour long. A little bit more than half of that are just Q&A between the media and Jerome Powell. I usually just two times speed it. And when I'm working out yeah. or doing something, I'll just like listen through it. So to be honest, I wasn't as attentive this time. A couple of key points that stood out. I mean, he always says this again and again and again, right? This may not necessarily be the last rate hike. They're assessing the situation. They're not comfortable. They're not confident that inflation is going to return to 2% at the moment, right? 
but they're also not confident that it won't. It will. What is it? What did they say? If they're not confident it's going to return, they're not confident that it might not return. Not that it will return. What am I saying? I'm going all over the place. <laughs> they're not confident, Basically, they're not confident the that it's going to stay at two or it's going to hover above two. They're not really yeah. sure what's going to happen, right? So they're playing it ear by ear, meeting by meeting. Someone asked them, I don't remember which, uh, which media outlet. They asked them if they are going to hike rates in September, uh, not September, December. And Jerome Powell basically told them to fuck off. But he did indicate that there is potential for one more rate hike, but they are very cognizant of the fact that continuing their hike rates because they noticed that the labor market is starting to, it's strong, but it's starting to slow down a bit. Inflation is still strong. Consumption is still strong, but they're noticing that the US economy, although strong, it is slowing down, but they don't feel confident that it's going to return to 2%. So who knows? It might mean uh, one more rate hike. But uh, hopefully we're near their end. We'll see what happens. But that's sort of my, my takeaway from there. I don't understand how it's impacted them. But we're not economists. Don't, don't want to say we are. Uh, but if someone wants to explain why the bond market has dropped, um, please do tell us. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to jump into today's episode. We have Cam Cassidy. This is a solo episode. This is while you were on vacation while you living it up in what? Greece yeah. and Dubai. <laughs> so left me alone running the podcast. Well, Cam is uh, an amazing guest. So speaking about Twitter... Cam's pretty active on Twitter. He's an active real estate agent, also works full time in a real estate brokerage as well. So has a lot of data, has his ears to the ground, knowing what's happening at all times in the real estate market, specifically in Durham. So we go into what he's seeing in the market today, specifically in the Durham region, what his thoughts are going to be for the future of real estate within the next couple of months, his long-term thoughts, and also how Cam is still able to successfully flip during that volatile market. So if you guys want to know what's going on to today's market, this is an episode that you can't miss out on. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend, leave us a five-star rating. Uh, I think our ratings are actually doing pretty well, Mayu. We're like a hundred plus rating. So let's get that to 200. I don't know if that's possible, but we can only dream. And let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, and I've been looking forward to this episode. We have Cam Cassidy. Cam's, how is everything going, my man? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Austin. Um, yeah, looking forward to having a conversation and uh, always love chatting real estate. Things are going okay, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> I've been following you on Twitter, and I'm seeing all of the sort of news that you've been putting out there from a bird's eye view. We're just talking offline, and you're a broker of record now, managing what, over was it 400 or 4,000? Four, 430. I'm a manager. I'm not a broker record of, of right at home, but okay. like, yeah, managing managing a brokerage now, which yeah, nice change of pace. But uh, Twitter's been a lot of fun as well. <laughs> yeah, I've known, like I was all up on Instagram before following everything, but I feel like it's uh, it's not really an accurate representation of what is going on. And it's very hard to discover new people on Instagram as well, because the algorithm sort of just follows the content, people that you're already following, which a lot of it is, you know, people pumping up the market. So I wanted another sort of perspective. I feel like Twitter's almost on the opposite direction. It's overly bearish, uh, yeah. but it's a good middle ground between both. For those who don't know you, Cam, why don't you give like a quick minute or two sort of background on, on who you are? Yeah. So I started as a real estate agent slash investor journey probably about eight years ago now is when that started. I was in a small business owner before that. I'd bought my own primary residence, started doing conversions, started teaching people how to do conversions, started investing further myself. 
things like fix and flips. And then eventually now but buying into Florida and doing Airbnbs in Florida. And for a while there was just focusing on the real estate sales side of things. And, and yeah, as you mentioned, I've recently pivoted to more of a management role and uh, slowing down on the sales side of things. And to be honest, focusing more on investing, more on flipping, finding that there's more money or more value of my time spent in those types of things than, than just the, the transactional sales point of view. So yeah, I'm a husband, a father of two. And um, yeah, I really love talking about all things real estate and uh, don't plan on going anywhere as far as that's concerned. I'm, I'm a real estate addict. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. So I know that uh, being an agent, one thing that's not very common is is agents or maybe correct me if I'm wrong, agents getting into fixing and flipping and construction and all of that. I noticed that when you were early in your journey and I was following along, you were doing pretty substantial flips or maybe those are burrs, but you were gutting down places and pretty much not rebuilding, but doing everything in the interior, top, bottom, pretty extensive renovations. Could you tell me how you got into that space? Being a small business owner prior to real estate, I've always just had that type A wanting to learn and wanting to grow into, uh, I don't know, di- different areas. And I mean, I I started just joining the real estate community in Durham region and cooking, hooking up with investors here and other realtors here that were doing investment focused stuff. And yeah, just kind of one thing led to another. And our first project was my own home, our own bungalow. We added a, a, an apartment in the basement. We gutted that basement, legalized it and put a, a basement apartment in there. So that was our first kind of taste of it. And it was just kind of from there going, wow, this is pretty cool. And then finding projects that worked. And we have done a couple of just cosmetic flips. We have done a couple big ones where we're underpinning, building garages, rebuilding roofs, things like that. So yeah, just going where the numbers work and, and what makes sense. I'm a big believer in just kind of being open to any opportunities and then analyzing that opportunity to see if if you think it can work and I've kind of just taken everything one deal at a time, one project at a time, and um, I've tried to make smart, calculated decisions along the way. For sure. I think that's where most people uh, get in trouble when they start taking on multiple projects at a time. And honestly, I've been guilty of that early on in my journey. But uh, since then, I've learned there's been like close calls, uh, more so from a capital constraint, right? Because with real estate investors, a lot of us do have equity. We do have the net worth to back up these sort of projects that we're taking on, but we don't have the liquidity and that worth doesn't necessarily translate to cash in the bank. So I think that's the best way to sort of go about it for a lot of people is, is to grow steady in real estate because that's ultimate, it's ultimately a long-term investment at the end of the day. And those who stretch themselves thin, yes, you can get substantial returns, but you could also lose your shirt along the process, which we've seen in the latter half of 2002. Sort of carrying on that. So you mentioned that you when we were chatting offline, you, you were talking about doing flips in the current environment. And I think you've done two or three this year. Would you be able to walk me through how you were able to land these deals? What made you confident? Because flipping in this market is relatively difficult, right? Because you don't know how long the property is going to stay days on market. And if you're taking out private money, the biggest thing is psychology, right? Because you could sit on the sideline and say, I'm going to wait for the right buyer to come. My product is better than everyone else's. But if 30 days passes by and you're paying out the ass and interest rate, you're going to feel motivated to take whatever offer you get. So can you walk me through that thought process of how you got into fixing and flipping this year and, and why it made sense to you? Yeah. So 2021, basically I saw that the burst strategy in Durham region and, and most of Ontario just wasn't working anymore, right? Legal two units, 
in Durham region were going above a million dollars and only bringing in $4,000 rent in a month. And it just, from that point on, I was going, huh, okay, now what do I do? That's kind of been my bread and butter for years. I, I feel confident in the strategy, but the numbers just don't work anymore. So that's when I went to Florida and started buying properties down there to Airbnb, but I still wanted to do stuff around here. I feel very confident in my ability to analyze my market. I think that's a strategic advantage. And I still wanted to to utilize that or, or capitalize on that. And so January came of 2022 and I could tell everyone was fearful. But what I was noticing in the market is that we were starting to get multiple offers again. And I went, huh, what is going on? Like, that is interesting. And just before the stats came out, before that, I, I was getting a sense that our market is picking up here in, in early January. So I went and bought a bungalow in Whitby and um, I was not confident at all. <laughs> Some people lie and say that they knew what they were doing. I, every time I do a flip, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I, I am very cautious and trying to run numbers very conservatively. I bought it because it was a bungalow in a good area of Whitby, downtown Whitby. It already had, it had like almost eight foot ceilings in the basement with a kitchen already down there. It was a 50 foot frontage lot. I just knew that there was multiple exit strategies with it. So I went, you know what? I don't want to burn this. I want to flip it is my first exit strategy. But this is a safe property to get into when everybody's pretty fearful right now because I knew I could burn it and hang on to it and get two tenants in there and it at least survive with it. So that's why I picked that property. And then, yeah, I ended up selling it. I think we ended up making around 70K on that one. And we did a five-day rental. People were still shocked at that. We closed on it on a Friday. And contractors at that time were kind of slower in January, right? So I had a crew of six guys come in and I was like, I need it on the market next Thursday. Whatever you can do in those five days, I'll pay you for it. The money is no object, but time is. Time is most crucial. So I was like, if you can demo flooring, if you can do kitchens, cabinets, they tile the bathroom, basically the whole main floor, they did in five days. And then we got it on the market the following Thursday. And um, yeah, I was able to hold back offers, get multiple offers and sell it. And just because the market by that time was what I thought it was going to be where there was actually bidding wars were kind of back again for a short period of time there. And it worked out well property then we bought was another bungalow. And again, you'd see the common thread there of like a detached bungalows to me, even in this market, when everything else is struggling, they still do very well. They're still a very desirable property for either first time buyers or people moving down. They're not really a move up buyer type house, which I think are going to be the toughest transactions for the next couple of years, to be honest, is nobody's going to be able to move up, but there will be people downsizing and there will still be first time buyers. So to me, that's why that product specifically is what I did. So that one was in Newcastle and, and that one we did really well with. And I, I think we got super lucky. Like literally the market was turning as we were holding our offer night. That one, we made about $150,000. So that one did a lot better. We took our time on the rental. We did a better rental on this one. Like the Whippy one, we I was so fearful. I just put a, I was like, get what you can and let's get this thing back up before things change, but I was feeling more confident in the Newcastle one. And so we did a four week rental, not a long rental, but we actually did a nicer full kitchen, nicer flooring, feature walls, some different design things that take a little bit more time, but had a big impact. Someone came in and just loved the place. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, the theme is I'm a scared investor. I'm a conservative, you know, if anyone knows me truly, I am not a risk taker. 
I'm very fearful. I look at every angle. I'm very conservative. I actually sold two properties this year, uh, like long-term holds this year. So, I mean, I'm always trying to be cautious and not lose my shirt like we <laughs> talked No, about. totally understand. And with those flips, how were they funded? Was it a lender bank and then the rest was through cash, HELOCs, or what was the, the break? All private there? money. All private money. All at private. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So you had the incentive of being in and out as quickly as possible. Let me ask you this five day renovation. Um, obviously it sounded like you did a decent amount as well in those five days, the kitchen, main floor, flooring, paint, so on and so forth. Were you not picky on prices? Because I imagine if you hire someone to get something done in five days, you are going to pay a premium and you were okay with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I even said to the contract, just said, look, the more you get done, I really feel like the value will be there. If the more you can do, I cared more about the timing and, um, wanted to be up on that Thursday so that we can hold offers on the following Tuesday, have the weekend for open houses. So no, to me, to me in, in all flips, and that's why even in the Newcastle one, we spent more, we took our time doing more and we made double what we made in the other one. Like I think of my mistake in the Whippy one, I could have made more by doing the rental properly and actually taking four weeks to get things done, do the basement. The basement had a kitchen in it that it didn't touch. Now, looking back at it, it was a mistake. (laughs) I'm flexing like it's a good thing, but to me, it was just my fear. And that's all I'm trying to show is that I was so scared of going like, oh, I don't want to lose this. I'm I'm seeing it like flips fail left, right, and center, right? So I'm going, I got to be cautious. So I was overly cautious to a fault at that point, but I don't regret it. I mean, that's to to me, I'm I'm out with a profit and you never know what, what can happen with, with the market. What was interesting is, so I had built capital with people that I knew, right? So these were all friends and family that are lending money on promissory notes at 1% per month or 12% annually, interest only. And I had to give them their money back or I wanted to give their money back. But after I finished the Newcastle flip, I had their money sitting there. I had, I had money available to go buy something and I was looking and trying to get something else. But I, again, just was like worried about what was going to happen in the market. Thankfully, I didn't buy anything. But um, not thankfully, because yeah, things can still work. But I mean, it just didn't want to force something. I didn't want to just buy something for the sake of it. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense there. So is it safe to say, and we're going to get it, we're going to pivot the conversation into this sooner or later, but is it safe to say at this current market environment, you're not flipping at the moment? Or would you be open to flip if an opportunity comes up? Always open to an opportunity, but I am finding that wholesalers, Sellers on the market are all just looking back, right? They look back at comps, right? And when the market's trending down, people aren't considering, well, when I close on this, it's going to be worth two to three percent less. When I'm finished my rental, it's going to be worth five, six percent less. Actually, Oshawa dropped month over month from August to September, it dropped six percent. So that's in one month, a six percent drop. So the the median price in Oshawa was seven ninety and it's dropped to seven fifty. 740. It was like a $50,000 drop in one month, right? <laughs> so if you're a flipper and you're not accounting for that, you're done, right? You're toast. A lot of people's flips are only building in $40,000, $50,000 profit, right? And that disappeared in one month. So my point is I'm looking, but the prices just aren't low enough for me to purchase. And um, I'm always looking at them. I mean, I have wholesalers calling me saying, hey, what are you looking for? I'm like, you know what I like? I want a detached bungalow. I don't want something too high a price point. I don't want something too low of a price point. I need multiple exit strategy. I'm picky, right? <laughs> I'm picky. And I, I feel like you should be picky and, and you shouldn't just try to flip to flip and just to look busy or look active, right? But um, 
Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think the trouble is with most fix and flippers, that's their only stream of income. And so it's almost sort of to be able to get ahead, you need to leverage more. You need to take on more risk. And if things don't go well, you get caught up in this vicious cycle because you have to take on another flip that is hopefully successful to cover other losses that you have. I will say what I'm noticing, and I'd like to hear your thoughts, is that a lot more people are looking for properties with a mortgage helper. So I have a flip right now in Toronto that I'm looking at selling, um, or it's already, it's been on the market for a while. Our common feedback we've been getting, and this is going to get into our conversation about market sentiment, is, is that with current interest rates, it is very difficult for even high income earners to sustain a mortgage payment, the cost of home ownership, utility, so on and so forth with this property that we have listed. And that's the biggest feedback we've been getting. People are looking for ways to uh, get secondary income. And my basement height was about six feet. So that, that's been causing a little bit of trouble. Is that sort of a commonality of what you've been seeing on the market right now for buyers? I think that's always going to be true, right? I think any property that has quote unquote mortgage helper like that, like a basement apartment or something like that, that they can rent coach house or laneway house or anything like that. Absolutely. Right. That's why I like flipping bungalows, right? Because even if I don't reno the basement, the buyer is looking at that as an opportunity for them and it becomes a more sellable product. Right. So, I mean, I used to use the workshops I used to do, even when we were doing the birth strategy, it was always adding that basement apartment to that legal second suite. I just felt it was such a safe product and I still do even in a down market. And that's why not coincidentally, my two properties I bought were bungalows. And I mean, that Newcastle one, I was in multiple offers, right? On, on the wholesale, the wholesaler made a hundred thousand dollar wholesale fee on that Newcastle one. He, he bought it for 525. He was asking five. 90, I think. And I was like, sure, I'll take it for 590. He's like, sorry, Cam, there's multiple. I'm like, I'm winning this. Like, cause I knew I'm like, that's a good quality property. Right. And I don't care to pay the fee knowing that you can turn it into a really nice property. Right. So yeah, that, that idea of the mortgage helper for everybody, I think we'll see more of that too. Like I know there's stats out there right now of how big the houses we have with such few people. And I think we'll see families starting to merge and the older generation starting to move in with kids or finding things. So properties like that, yeah, I think are, are super valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's sort of pivot the conversation into the overall market and sentiment. I think you sort of have that unique insight of being a manager and managing 400 plus realtors. Earlier in the year, we alluded to things picking back up. I think it was a, probably around April, May, where things really took off. And then suddenly after rate hikes this year, things halted and it's never seemed to recover since. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to kind of talk through why you think the market picked up in spring and how things have changed now? Because we've had a rate pause, but yet sentiment didn't flood back in the market. Yeah. So the, I think the original signaling from the Bank of Canada caused the, uh, wasn't just a signaling, they did. They paused for two meetings in a row. And so that gave a lot of people life and the sentiment changed. But the big thing I think attributed to that, as well as now seeing the market going down, was the bond market, not necessarily the variable rate market. So the five-year bond was going down when the market was going up in the spring, February to June there. If you looked at a chart, it was hovering, it wasn't going down, but it was like slowly grinding sideways, which 
people were okay with. They were able to get fixed rate mortgages in the low fours and people were fine with that. But now the bond market is just shooting through the roof. And if anyone doesn't know that the five-year bond is how the five-year fixed rate gets priced. So buyers were not taking variable rates. So the Bank of Canada changed maybe sediment, but it was the bond market to me that people weren't keeping an eye on that had, you know, was the reason why we saw the the run up in price or the the slight increase in price, we can say. But now it's the same reason why we're going to see the keep market keep trending down. I know yesterday the five-year bond, I think it touched 4.5%, which is like record highs and in, in how many years? So, I mean, we're, we're then, you know, the banks put a premium on that, but then there's the stress test on top of that. So people now are going to have to go qualified eight, nine percent. I just don't see how we don't see further price drops in the next three to five months. Mm-hmm. No, totally. That makes a lot of sense. And that's sort of the same uh, thought process that I have. I also think that in spring, there wasn't as many listings, right? Sellers were still a little bit True. stubborn. But now the reality is if you go online, I'm sure you can see this on your data. There's a lot of sellers starting to flood the market now. A lot of terminations, increase in power of sales. And it's not not looking not looking great for the supply side. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, December, December of 2021, the number of listings, if you look at any charts, they are laughable at how few listings there were in December of 2021. Which, yeah, to your point, triggered why that bidding war started coming back in January and then just kept going into that whole spring market uh, was the lack of supply as well. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. And currently right now, what is the overall sentiment that you're you're sort of getting speaking with these realtors on your team? And, and, you know, they're probably dealing with a lot of buyers as well. Are they sitting on the sidelines? Are they still active? Are they being more picky? It's a bloodbath out there. It, it is honestly a bloodbath out there from a realtor perspective. Sales are trending down, so there's less business to be had, but there's just a lot of problems that I can give you the one example. I know I tweeted out that we had a, a pre-construction buyer purchase a home in Ajax a couple of years ago, but closed on it uh, just last week for $1.8 million. It's a four bedroom, five bath, two double car garage, beautiful home. But at that time they were selling at 1.8. We're only worth about 1.3 right now. And uh, it only appraised at 1.5. So they had to take a 300K private on it. And so they're deciding to rent it out now because they don't want to take a 500K loss. Their monthly burn rate's almost $10,000 a month and they can only rent it for $4,000 a month. So this buyer is actually an accountant who <laughs> is not someone who is, you think would, would know numbers and, and be educated, but took a risk on buying this can't doesn't really want to sell it for a 500k loss but is deciding to lose six thousand dollars a month just to hang on to this property so i can give you another example of a realtor i was talking to yesterday where they had three purchases that were conditional on the sale of their property so he has he has three listings where those three sellers have already purchased something conditional on the sale of that property and they're just sitting getting no activity no showings so he's sitting there going, wow, I could have six sales if someone comes and buy these listings because then they'll firm up on their purchase. But yeah, so you're seeing those types of conditions come back and you're just seeing things not moving and buyers kind of constrained, sellers going, do I need to sell? And what I think happened in 2021, like we talked about, we saw sellers go sit on the sideline. The reason why I don't think we'll see that this year is because of renewals. Mm-hmm. Like the time is ticking. So every month that 
that those renewals happen, people are going, well, I'm out of time. I can't sit on the sideline anymore. I don't want my rate to triple on me. I'm not going from 2% to 6%. So I think we'll see more for selling coming than we did last year, where it was kind of like, wait, why didn't we see it last year? Now looking back at it going, well, they had options last year. Those options are running out. Yeah. And just to specify, you said t- d- uh, by 2021, did you mean 2022, the end of 2022 and 2023? December 2021 and then beginning of 2022, right? 2022 was the bull market. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. on calendar year. December. T- <laughs> That's all good. And then, yeah, January 2023. Yeah, I figured. I think most people will will follow that as well. It's crazy. Time passes by. The market, it feels like we went through like three mini cycles. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, three years. Yeah, was December 2022. And then, yeah, this year, 2023 is, yeah, that's when that, that the sales and the, the listings were just crazy low. Yeah, starting with the pandemic. This is off topic. Starting with the pandemic, things slowed down. Then they picked up. And oh. that thing slow, things actually kind of balanced out in 2021, near the end of it, fall. And then it just went to the moon in 2022, fell off a cliff with the rate hike. And then 2023, or like this year, early in the year, things picked back up and now it's fall, falling off a cliff again. It's, it's like three micro cycles that we just had. All right, like, I feel like we're GameStop here. I feel like we're like a, <laughs> a stock being traded here. Like why? Like the volatility is just crazy, right? These crazy run-ups and then crazy drops. I mean, to me, it just it's just not rational to, to, for them to be moving. And that's why I said, like, even in Oshawa, the month over month dropping 6%, I'm like, holy smokes, like that is just, that's outrageous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. And you think about, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, you think about the buyers in Oshawa, I imagine a lot of them are GTA buyers that are moving further out east right? And they already have a tight budget because I'm sure if they had preference, capital wasn't an issue, rates were low, they would probably prefer to be closer towards the core. But obviously that not being an option, they have to move further. And with, again, as you mentioned, qualifications being eight to 9%, they can't really buy or whatever they can buy. It's probably just a condo, which I imagine if you're moving to the suburbs, that's not the type of product that you want. Um, Yeah. And, and I think for the first time in a long time, renting is making a lot more sense than, than purchasing at these purchase prices. We're seeing, I, I had a client who reached out to me who was thinking of buying young couple, first time buyers, good incomes, went to go get pre-qualified and their max budget was 575, 575,000, which would have been roughly $3,000 a month mortgage payment. But then they went to go look at what they could rent. They could rent a four bedroom home in Ajax, or I mean, in Oshawa for that same amount, right? So they're going, why would I go buy some South Oshawa, two bedroom, hundred year old home in this type of market to pay something similar to something else? So I think a lot of people, and that's making the rental market more competitive and as well, but. Mm -hmm. So, so speaking about the rental market, what are you seeing down there right now? Cause we're hearing at least in Toronto specifically on the Twitter universe, everyone is pointing out that rents are, are going through the roof. And I think that's a common topic with a lot of tenants as well. Tenants are where, so for, for buyers who are buying multifamily properties, my conversation that I've had is it's very tough to negotiate with tenants on cash for keys because again, if they go on Twitter, they go on Instagram, if they go on TikTok, if they go on Google, the top headline is always rent are climbing up. And so everyone's aware of what they have. Is that a similar sort of situation in Durham? And do you anticipate for rents to continue to pick up? Because I feel like rents are more, they're definitely more tied to the average income 
of Canadians more so than property prices. I can sort of see how property prices might disconnect because there's that wealth gap between people who make more money or have higher net worth or have existing assets to continue to buy. But renters are, a lot of them are the middle class for the most part. So do you continue seeing rents pick up? Yeah, in, in the low end, in the low end product, absolutely, right? I think it's super competitive. I mean, I still have challenges with quality of tenant, right? Like you're, you're trying to find, you, you're going to get tons of people apply to, to your basement apartments, to your main floor apartments, to your any two bedroom apartment you have. You're going to get a ton of interest in it. And it's just finding the right tenant is still challenging. I think we are seeing softening and we will see softening in rents in the higher end market just like I think we will in real estate, just exactly to your point of the affordability. But we also might see people selling and going to rent these homes like other people are. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think rents will continue to be strong. I don't see them dropping how quickly or if they go up because they are tied to incomes was the other challenge. But you still just get crazy number of applicants and people applying, but you start looking at these applications and going like, you only make this and you're wanting to rent this and you have three dogs and you have this, you know what I mean? So I don't know. It's one of those things. I think if you have a property with low loan to value, you're, you're locked into a rate, the rental market's going to be strong, right? I don't think that's going to drop off. You can hang on, but at this point we're in the hang on period in my view, right? you're too late to, to make a move. You know, if prices are dropping like this, you're too late to get out of a bad situation. There's very few solutions right now to the problems other than sit tight. So let's talk about, you mentioned very, very little solutions. If someone was in the position where they have a rental, pro- they have an investment property, it's tenanted out at the moment. And I'm sure you have a lot of conversations with people in, in, in those sort of situations. What is the best advice for them? Or is it really just sit down and wait it out? Or can they do cash for keys and they're going to have to stink in more money? But what are the best options for them, in your opinion? I think it depends if they have equity, right? If they've owned the property for a while and they do have equity in it, meaning that whatever debt they have on that property is less than the amount of the value that you can get, it's worth selling. It's worth getting, ca- getting the tenants out, offering them cash for keys and selling if you need the money if you're struggling, right? If you're saying I'm in trouble, if your renewal's coming up in six months and you're going, wow, when I run the numbers, I'm now going to be losing money every month. To me, there's no reason to put yourself in that situation just to hope that the market will go back up in price. I mentioned I sold two long-term investments in the spring because I, I thought, you know what, this is the chance to, to get out to, with some equity. Why not? Why not get into cash and, and be a little bit more conservative when there's always another day to get back in and fight and continuing to invest. But going back to your question of solutions, it's amazing how many people don't even have a, haven't even had a conversation with their tenant asking if they'd be willing to leave. They're sitting there just bleeding money. And it's like, you don't know what their number is. You need to find out your tenant's number. Is it a one month's rent? Is it 30,000? Is it who knows what it is, but that'll help you to make a decision. But I just find so many people are morally against giving tenants cash. They just they can't wrap their head around that idea to then better themselves or get out of a sticky situation. If you're like the house I talked about in Ajax, where you're negative equity, you're negative cash flow, you're done. Like, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a sitting duck right now. I don't know what your solution is other than to lick your wounds, take your loss, and hopefully you have other assets or other income or other ways to support yourself because 
it's past that point now where listings are sitting and if you have no equity, you're in trouble. Yo, no, absolutely agree. I think that there's a price where everything sells that ultimately, but can you stomach that loss or not? For people like you and I, so with one of my flips, I might run into a small loss. This is like the Toronto one. Uh, mm. At the peak of the market, which is when I sort of peak of this year, not not of all time, it started when I started the renovations and it was supposed to be a one month project. Had I listed it in one month in June, I would have walked away, in my opinion, with close towards a six figure profit. Uh, yep. It's located in Dufferin and, and Dundas uh, in the little Portugal area. Right now we're listed at one million. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say what price I'm willing to take, but let's say that. So I bought it for by the time this comes out, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> I bought it for 830 and I put in about a hundred in renos and then the transaction fees are quite expensive in Toronto, realtor fees, so on and so forth. All in, all in, I'm probably sitting at about 1060000 for a fully renovated semi-detached house in Little Portugal. Frankly, if it means that I have to eat a loss, I'm okay with that, right? Because I didn't lever, I, I got 92% loan to value on 3% interest, but all of the rentals, the, down, the rest of the down payment was funded through cash. So mm-hmm. hypothetically, I'm thinking about what's my downside? Yeah. Let's say I lose, my downside is I sell this thing and it's not going to sell for this, but I can sell this thing for 760000 mm-hmm. and lose all of the capital that I injected into this property. Yeah. But obviously it'll, it'll sell at seven sixty, no doubt in my mind, right? But I, I think not every investor, I wouldn't do that. Maybe I would. If shit gets that bad, then definitely I would. I don't think a lot of investors have that mindset. They're like, if I'm losing, I'd rather hold on to it. It's like, no, dude. <laughs> like, I I literally had an agent in my office who who flipped a property and they were going to take a 7K loss. And I was like, take the loss. It's And they just were like, I want to hang on to it. I want to relist. I want to do this. I'm like, take the offer. That's 7K. Like live to fight another day. But it it is so true. So, and I mean, even that other Ajax story I was telling you about, 6K a month negative cash flow. I'm like, how? Oh, I, I don't I don't see how that is possible to last more than three months unless there's some I know they're an accountant, so I know they're making, you know, maybe 150 a year, maybe 200, depending on where they are. So I'm like, I that's not feasible to to hang on to that, right? So I don't know. I mean, this this is the stuff that I'm sitting here going, things are getting uglier by the day. And I think it's a healthy correction that we need. I think no one would argue that. Toronto is a world-class city, but we're overvalued. We're overvalued relative to incomes, right? Relative to what people are making in this city. And I mean, I don't know. That's my personal opinion, but. Yeah, no, no, totally understand. And I, I want to I want to make that very specific. It's, it's overvalued relative to income, right? Which is, <laughs> and that's obviously uh, your opinion there. I don't disagree with that. But when I went traveling, I went to Sweden. I went to Paris. Like that's an actual world-class city. <laughs> but I went to Sweden and Stockholm. I went to Norway and uh, Oslo. And I found surprisingly, at least in the core of the city, right? The issue with Toronto and GTA is that all of the suburbs are overpriced as well, which is not the case in a lot of these other world-class cities. But the core of Toronto is actually fairly priced. One, like this is just a random metric. And these are not necessarily comparable cities, but to Oslo, Stockholm, Paris. In Italy, I went to Rome, right? That's all, that's another world-class city. But it's relatively, like the price is, it, it makes sense that like the core itself 
But when you start going out of the core and you see, I don't know, like Hamilton sell for well above half a million, that makes me scratch my head a little bit. Because oh, yeah. in those cities, if you go out 30, 40 minutes away from the city center, the prices drop off pretty drastically. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I don't, and you always see the downtown core whenever there's a correction, they always hold up the best, right? They are always staying strong. So, I mean, the downtown core, I agree. And I mean, the problem is just, I think a lot too is will come out. Like we don't know what kind of illegal activity has been happening as far as money laundering, as far as banks lending out money. Like even Laurentian Bank the other day, I, their CEO had to step down because they didn't get a, you know, things like that where they're just not telling you the full story. And I'm like, like, can we hear the, that what's actually going on behind the scenes? And I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I think things will... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see, right? I mean, this is it. I don't like to make future predictions. I never like to guess on the market. I mean, even though you kind of have to a little bit, yeah. but well, that's why I like flips because they're, you know, a one month guess. You're saying what's going to happen within the next month or two. And I think that is manageable when you're flipping where long-term holds, you can't even think about that. I mean, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is going forward with long-term investments and I know my properties now that I have are all with fixed mortgages. Like my property in Florida, I have a 30 year fixed term at 4%. Those types of properties I'm not worrying about. So, I mean, going forward, if things don't make sense at a 10 year fixed rate in Ontario, I won't buy it. I won't buy it or invest in it as far as a long term hold. This idea that every five years you're stuck with what happens, you're stuck with the interest rate is nuts. Now thinking about it or now seeing what's happened, it's like, wow, yeah, that is that is crazy that now all these people renewing are just going, wow, I might, even though I was smart to take a five-year fix, I'm paying triple. <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally. I didn't even know we have a 10-year fix. We have a 10-year fix and, oh. and not a lot of people know about this. And you want to know something interesting about it because of the Mortgage Act, after five years, it's only a three-month interest penalty. So it's essentially like a five-year with a five-year option to renew, or even any time after that five-year, you can break that mortgage. And so it's usually about a half a percent or a percent higher than the five-year fixed rate. But you know, if you're an investor, and, and what really shook me was when I spoke to an Ontario REIT, and I asked them, I, you know, they, they were looking for, to get people to invest. And I was like, I looked up some of the properties in their portfolio. They have a multifamily portfolio. And I was like, you bought this in Markham in 2019. You paid 19 million for this. Like, are you worried about the financing or how is your financing structured? Do you as like him? We only do 10 year. We do nothing but 10 year on anything. We would never do anything less than that. And his average interest rate over their portfolio was like 3.04% or something like that. And I was like, that's impressive. That's a, that's a professional investor there really. And I know multifamily is obviously a longer term play, but I mean, to me, any investment that you're hanging on to should have that mindset. I hated selling. I didn't want to sell either of my properties that I sold. It literally bruised my ego. But because I was that real estate guy that built a portfolio, built a lifestyle, all this stuff, right? But I felt taking sometimes taking that step back and going in cash is not not a bad option. And I mean, I, I think if you haven't learned from these 11 interest rate increases, it's a you problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's the big thing. Uh, you being a sophisticated investor, even for someone like you, where you know rationally I should sell, you have to talk your ego down from it. It's perfectly normal for these sellers and even your realtor buddy you were mentioning who was trying to, like, who, who didn't want to take a 7K loss to have that ego hit and constantly have that argument. 
you're a little bit irregular in the sense that most people probably wouldn't have sold. Most people probably would have just held through it. But you have to talk. <laughs> Sometimes you have to talk yourself to make decisions that you're not necessarily comfortable with, but maybe the right decision to do at that point in time. And this is, again, coming from a sophisticated investor. It wasn't an easy decision for you to, to come to that conclusion. No. No, definitely not. Right. And I mean, it's uh, it took months for me to, to even pull the trigger and go through with it. Right. And I mean, it's um, but I mean, again, I think, you know, the, the only thing you can do is learn. Right. You have to learn from everything you do in life. And I mean, every day is different. Every deal is different. So you have to just take it one at a time and reflect on on where you're at in your life. <laughs> now, I want to change the topic real quick. Just a couple of quick other questions. Indicators mm-hmm. in the real estate market. Are there any specific indicators that you follow? I know a pretty popular one is months on inventory. Is there anything else that you take a look at on a weekly, monthly or quarterly basis? Showings. Number of showings, I think, is one that's underrated. And it's one of those things that we have an advantage with. Like our broker, our whole brokerage has 6,000 agents. Uh, across like the GTA. So I'm, I track number of showings for each month. And that's looking at buyers. Are buyers going out and viewing homes? Are they putting offers on homes? You have kind of the supply side where you're looking at our sellers. Are they putting their house on the market? But number of showings is not recorded anywhere, right? So once you see showings starting to go up, houses getting multiple offers, those are some of the anecdotal things that I would tweet about. And people would be like, oh, this guy's helping up the market. I'm like, no, like this house at 50, that's a fact. I don't know what else I can tell you, but those are signs of the market heating back up or cooling from the buy side that I think are things to look at. And what are you seeing for the, I know you don't like to take guesses, but the uh, next next couple of months in real estate, do you think things are going to stay as they are, get worse, get better? I think they're going to get worse. I think we're going to see prices continue to drop, especially just seasonally as we head into November, December, which are typically slower months. Uh, I think we're going to see it, it get really slow. I, I think inventory is going to be interesting in those month, months if sellers take their houses off the market or they keep them on. That's really what I'm going to be looking for. you know. But things are starting to break here, meaning the economy is getting, things are being announced of, hey, employment, job loss, things like that. And I think that's what the Bank of Canada wanted to see. But then the bond market, right? Keeping an eye on the bond market to see if those fixed rates drop at all. Yeah, is, is really what I'm happy, is really what I'm going to keep an eye on. But I also thought this in 2022, right? But now looking back, I go, yeah, I see why the end of 2022, 23 kind of ramped back up. So I could be wrong again. I think we still, and I know we haven't really discussed this, we do still have a lack of supply in Ontario and in the GTA, that is a concern. We're still not building quick enough. We're still have immigration coming in. I never like to use that, but it is still a fact that it's not like we're still, and I mean, we're talking about a balanced market and we're at 2.8 months of inventory here in Durham region. So it's like, you know, 2.8 months, 2.8 months. Yeah. Lower than Toronto right now. Wow. That's what I mean. Right. Like we're still relatively low Places like Northumberland, further east, they're up to about six months of inventory. So they, they've creeped up quite a bit in those areas. But still in this area, like we can still go north, but everyone needs to be by 401 or 407 to get to Toronto. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And I don't think, I still think you're going to see investors trying to sell off properties that are negative cash flowing. The LTB and their issues also play a factor in there. I don't know. This is the thing, even talking about, I'm like, wow, there's so many things that influence this market. 
Well, that it's so tough to predict. And I mean, that's it. But um, I, I will still look for deals. I'll still look at the, all the wholesale emails. I still run numbers on everything. You know, I'm a believer of being ready and being able to jump on something that that mm. that can work. But you still with the mindset of, I think we're going to still see price dropping. So I have to incorporate that in my numbers. Yeah, it's it's so tough to say exactly to your point. Real estate isn't necessarily rational and it is more stickier than some other investments. It's, it's less liquid and, and people, especially people who've owned real estate for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, they are able to withhold interest Absolutely. rate changes. And so we don't always see that reflected. But but to your point there, things appear to be getting worse in the data. How does it translate to real estate? I mean, logically, I mean, it should it should it should lead to a decrease, but it doesn't. I don't know if something happens and then to your point, fixed rates drop, there are still buyers out there on the sideline that are waiting, right? Like how is, what is that going to do to the market? It, it's such a challenge. I think, uh, so we talked about it in the previous podcast, but our GDP report came in flat at zero. Prior to that, it was negative uh, 0.2. And uh, every month, every month it's been trending down. And obviously that's like overall GDP with letting in 1.1 million people into our country, like per, on a per capita basis, it it looks a lot worse, right? Our productivity has gone down as a country. I don't, I don't want to be like a negative Nancy with everything, but the reality is, is that taking real estate out of the picture, things things aren't looking looking too great, great for Canadians. That being said, I mean, what do you think are the drivers of, let's say, hypothetically prices rise in the short term? What what do you think are 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 going to be the main drivers of that? Is it population growth? Is it interest rates? I think it's Canadians being irrational and and being so passionate about real estate. It could be a lack of supply, but I mean, to your point, it's 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 the the people that won't sell right now, or the people that are waiting on the sidelines to jump back in. That is real. That is so real and true that I think any signals of a pause or bond markets dropping or anyone having any sort of bullish signal are ready to jump back in. It hasn't damaged people's psyche yet to the point of people wanting to get away from real estate yet, which, as you said, is not logical. It's not logical. And, and you know, what I've learned is that I've, and I've spoken to multifamily property owners in, in this area and, and I'll say to them, hey, like I have a buyer buying at a four cap. You can go buy a bond at a 5% interest rate, <laughs> but they, they don't want to do that. They're, they're not logical. They're not sitting there going, that makes sense. I'll sell this at a four cap and go put my money elsewhere. They want to keep the hard asset. They want to keep the the piece of real estate. And uh, so that mentality either has to break or we're going to see prices go back up as soon as we see any sort of positive news or from a financing perspective. I, I still think people value real estate based off the monthly price they pay, not the total price of the asset. Yeah. And so as soon as people can make it work financially, I'd be shocked if incomes rise, but they will trend up slightly. We just have to be careful of getting into that inflation wage spiral that I know the Bank of Canada is fighting against, right? So, yeah, I mean, uh, it, I don't know. We'll What's see. your long-term sentiment? Because we've been talking a lot in the short term. Are you still pretty bullish in Ontario real estate over the long term? I am. I am. I still think Canada's a good, desirable country. I still think we, we, you know, we have people that want to come here. Again, you look at other places in the world and you sit here and go, this is still from a weather perspective. People love that idea of, I've been in Florida a lot and it's been one of the most shocking things to me is how many 
people in the summers come north from Florida, like they come up north because the summers are so hot there that it's uncomfortable. And I mean, you think we're like, oh, we have these nasty winters, but people love our summers here because it's that perfect temperature. You can actually function outside, even from a perspective of natural disasters and tornadoes and hurricanes. We got none of that here. You know, we get a snowstorm every now and then, but that's, that's, you know, nothing. So, I mean, I overall think that this is still a desirable place. The Greenbelt fiasco with Ford and it going back also, I think is a bullish sentiment, right? That good luck getting anything removed from the green belt in the future. The the red tape around that will be challenging, which again is going to limit where we can build. So I think long-term, like again, I still have long-term properties, like you said, that have low loan to values that I'm hanging on to. And then I feel very comfortable with, I have no plans to sell those. And uh, I hope to acquire more in the future, but um, yeah, I think we need a, a little short-term correction. And I mean, like you said, I hate predicting long-term. I, I don't know. I think you have to kind of, and you know what? And I think that's what's attracted me to flipping, right? Is I don't need to think long-term when you're flipping. It's a nice little peace of mind, but a, a account I follow on Twitter that has really changed my perspective. And what I would say got me more bullish on flipping is a uh, strip mall guy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Mall. He's in the States, right? Yeah. And he, he, but he flipped strip malls, right? He's not a long-term investor. He doesn't have anything in his long-term portfolio. And just some of his thoughts and and I go, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Like it's an anonymous account that you could tell the person is a real estate expert and uh, has a ton of experience, but just their perspective on on things like that has definitely changed my view in investing in real estate. And I mean, that's that's why I love Twitter too. I feel like there's people adding value there as opposed to just pumping the market. <laughs> or trying to promote their sales. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, I've been a little bit more quiet on Instagram and have been spending more time on Twitter. I haven't tweeted anything personally, but uh, just following the accounts there, it's always it's again like I think it it does tend to lean on the bearish side for sure. But yeah. it is more I think it's a more realistic picture, definitely more analytical than yep. than other social media platforms because um, you have these anonymous accounts. You have these people that are you know have no. Like your face, like on Instagram, your face is there or your profile's there. So like, you have to be careful what you say where people, yeah, some, some of the things are ridiculous, but there's some really phenomenal accounts there that are giving you good food for thought and things to think about. And yeah, I'm a little bit stubborn, but my rule of thumb is if anyone posts a better dwelling article, I just block them immediately. I'm like, okay, you're posting a better dwelling. You're obviously <laughs> firm of air. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, I follow both, right? I, I, to me, it's like, you know, be open to listening to both. And I, I've read the, you know, I'll read the better dwelling articles and I believe it's on the consumer to make an informed decision. Once they read something, uh, I don't think there's a problem reading something. It's what, do, what do you do after? Do you go, oh, I agree. Or I agree with that. If you let yourself, your opinion to be changed that easily. And again, that's a you problem. And you need to read a bullish article, read a bearish one, go to the real estate meetups, I go to some of the real estate meetups now and I go, wow, everyone's really bearish. I'm going like, I mean, really bullish. Why isn't anybody talking about the negative side of things? So I felt like I needed that balance, right? And I feel like every real estate investor needs to hear it from both sides and then they can make up their own mind. Totally, totally. And this is the last question. And then we'll lead into our questions that we ask every every guest at the end is what are the opportunities, if any, that you see in the current real estate market for real estate investors? Huh. Current opportunities in the current market. 
Um, or our upcoming, it could be like the next month, two, three months. What, in your opinion, would be an opportunity to look out for as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's a tough question and something I've been struggling with myself because I, I don't know if I have an answer. I don't know if I know an answer or have something confident enough to say into this. I mean, I, I am so shocked at, at the values at which things are trading, even from a multifamily or a commercial standpoint cap rates are at 4% and debt is at 6%. I, I just, I, I don't see an opportunity there. I'm going to focus on flips or any sort of value add. And again, I think that's because you can do that in a short term. I think long-term it, it's best to sit on the sidelines right now. I'm not someone who'd say, I, again, unless the numbers really look good or unless you can get a really good deal, but I, I am only looking at my next deal. I, I, only look at one deal at a time. And for me, it'll likely be another flip. I did look at multifamily at one point. Again, I don't, um, I, I just don't think sellers will sell at a, at a, I mean, again, if you could find that deal, great. That's always a, 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 a variable. I'm still looking in the States. I'm still believing the Airbnb model. My, my property down there that I, I have one down there now, I sold one of them is unbelievably doing unbelievably well. And those numbers would shock people. And so to me, that's where I'm going to stick. I know people are saying Airbnb's dead or it's dying or anything like that. I mean, furthest from the truth for my the, the condo that I have. And uh, so to me, if I'm buying long-term, it'll be in the States with a 30-year fixed mortgage. If I'm buying in Ontario, it'll be a flip. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. So it sounds like uh, really the LTB uh, has drawn you, drawn you to the States a little bit. Or not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, you know, because again, I have properties here in Canada that I have great tenants. And again, I think the LTB still is fair. I think a lot of landlords blame the LTB, but it's really their own issues of poor management. But that's maybe a longer discussion. To me, it is the Airbnb opportunity and fixed financing. To me, those are the two things that attract me to the States. Airbnb in an area that is a, that allows it, to me... And the numbers obviously have to make sense. It's just a, it's where the numbers work. You know, I'm just going where I see the numbers working. I don't see them working anywhere else. And you know, I now value things like cash on cash return more, which I didn't used to. And again, stability of financing, right? It's such a in such an awakening to say in Canada, if you're buying a long term investment with a five year fixed, even you're still subject to whatever happens in. Canada, right? As far as rates and your investment can tank as we've seen that because of no fault of your own, but because of the financing product that you pick. And um, to me, that is something I never thought about before. Five years, like an eternity always, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And again, who would have thought that what was an 11 hike would have happened less than two years? <laughs> so to, to your point, uh, no fault of the investor's own because I think everyone got trapped in a crappy situation, but you got to find ways to mitigate that risk. And, and, and the way to do it is remove the interest rate risk completely, taking on yeah. long, long-term products. Um, now we're going to roll over to the final two questions in the podcast that we asked every guest. Um, what is your five-year goal? Uh, and it could be anything from real estate investing, life, business. Yeah. My five-year goal is to continue to become financially free. Can you not have to rely on money or make money a stress in my life from a financial uh, perspective and focus on raising my kids? I have two young kids, two and five years old. 
I got into this and my goal has always been to be able to spend time with them, to spend time with friends, to enjoy life. I think life is short and I think it's it's unfortunate that so many Canadians have to focus so much on finances and financial freedom just because of the environment that we live in. And this has been a, a, an awakening for me, but I am as prepared as can be going forward to continue to build a portfolio that actually gives me more freedom of money and freedom of time, which is my focus over the next five years. And I'm going to take it one deal at a time. I'm going to take it one property at a time. As long as I'm growing, moving forward, my direction is financial freedom. My direction is to focus my time on friends and family. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, see where that lands in five years. Yeah, I love it. Seems like you're balancing both pretty well for a lot of investors when they go all in. It's really the only people that can surround themselves with investors, which is great for high performers if that's what you want to do. But the realistic situation is, is that there's a lot of different aspects in life and it's almost balancing each one out. And to your point, life is short, right? So you have to enjoy the journey along the way. And I, I've learned that I've learned that a lot this year and last year is, is um, I don't have to put my pedal to the metal all the time. I can spend time enjoying time with friends. I don't need to maximize every decision like it's a financial decision. And yeah. my perspective is when I interact with tenants, when I interact with day-to-day individuals, I realize that a lot of us as investors are in a fortunate position to even be where we are. But we're always so focused on comparing ourselves with other investors versus versus like everyone else sort of in life, right? And not saying that the video game that you, that you compare yourself with other people, but like showing gratitude that you're in the position that you are in. And even if you're not to make another, let's say you're, you're, you're not ever going to get the, the returns that you made in the previous years, you've still benefited tremendously from the Canadian real estate market and are doing well financially. You're, you're in an envious position that a lot of people want to want to be in. Right. So it's just getting that other sort of perspective. And I don't think a lot of people uh, appreciate that enough. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at at life, you know, and I, I don't need to go anywhere. I could stay right where I'm at and I'd be perfectly fine. So, I mean, I feel blessed for that too. And I, I love that, that, that perspective, because I think that is what helped me sell properties, right? It's <laughs> to say, wait a second, I'm, I'm in a, you know, pretty fine, good, good position. Why, why push it? You know, why push it when it's not needed right now? And, um, yeah. And the last question here before you wrap up the podcast is what do you think the biggest risk is to newer real estate investors out there? or even establish real estate investors. I think we talked about it a little bit, but just to reiterate. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be any number of things, right? I mean, I, you know, over leveraging, not making, building a good team around you, not, not being open to opportunities, not connecting with other people and, and, you know, having that growth mindset, I feel like is the top ones. I don't know which one would be, but I, I'm a, you've heard me say it a few times. I'm a big believer in taking it one deal at a time I'm a believer that you should go where the next deal takes you, even if that means you're like, I know some people say don't have the shiny object syndrome. I don't agree with that. I think, I think it's fine to be open to exploring other ideas and then making an informed decision. I think sometimes people focus too narrowly and aren't open or have that mindset to say, Hey, you're doing this. Tell me about that. You know, I'm in, you know, I just want to hear about it. I'm not going to do it, but I want to know. Why did you decide to go to Dominican or why did you invest in Spain or why did you, you know, I mean, the more knowledge you have is power, right? And, and it allows you to make informed decisions. So, I mean, I'm a believer that you should learn before investing. I know some people say just take action, but 
I think you can take baby steps. You can take action in, in a slow, calculated method. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Well put. And Cam, really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. Had a fantastic chat with you. It's great catching up. For those who want to follow you on social media or keep in tune with your journey, how could they best do so? Yeah, Twitter is the best place. That's where I'm most active in that. I'm not really on Instagram anymore. I actually got hacked and my account was taken down, which is kind of a blessing. I'm, I'm fine. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm still active on Twitter. Just at Cam Cassidy is my, my handle there. And uh, yeah, feel free to DM me and follow me and uh, reach out. And um, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And I see you're pumping out content there. I think like every day you're, you're tweeting about something or resharing. So that's a good way for people, again, to keep in, keep in contact with Cam. And uh, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, share it with a friend. Always great to get fresh new perspectives and an unbiased opinion from a real estate expert himself, because a lot of people will probably may benefit financially from pumping up the market. But it seems that you're attacking it with sort of a head on truthful perspective and a database perspective. So, again, always appreciate your insights. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.